Great, um, thank you very, very much. That's wonderful. Well, welcome uh, to the book of Daniel. And uh, I love starting a new book. I'm very excited about starting Daniel for us this year. We will be following Daniel all the way through uh, now until Easter Sunday with a few breaks uh, in between, uh, looking at it on Sunday mornings and then studying it um, in our small groups in the week. But it's really good for us to get into a book that we might know a little about in terms of the more popular stories that we would have grown up with, perhaps, of Daniel in the lion's den, for example, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or the, the stories that, that are in the first half of the book. Um, but we may have perhaps given up in the last few chapters, if we've ever done a read-through of, of Daniel, the second half of the book, with its bizarre dreams, its long prophecies about kingdoms and rulers, etc., etc. And so my aim for this term... Uh, my aim as us as, as leaders, those of us who will be preaching this with the help of the Spirit, is to simply crack this book open and uh, for, for us to, to see how it all fits together, what it is doing in the Bible, and also how this Old Testament book with its unusual language and content d- doesn't need to be complicated at all, but in fact is very good news and necessary news for us to know as we sit here today and for our Christian lives in the world that we live in. But there is something that we need to do first, I think, before we do anything else, and that is to make sure that we are absolutely sure of where we are in the timeline of the Bible as we come to this book. For that is really important. If, if we don't know where uh, Daniel fits in, we, if we don't know how it fits in with the history of God's people um, and, and in the history of God's plan to save people from their sins through Jesus, then we're going to really struggle. So this is really important for us to do this well. So with the help of Han and the screen behind me, we're going to do a really quick pot history of the story of the Bible right up until Daniel, and then we're going to look past what happens after Daniel leading to Jesus. And then we're going to very briefly introduce the main themes as to why this book is written, what the author wants us to know, and then we're going to stop. And then we'll start in Daniel 1 properly uh, uh, next week. Now, please forgive me if this is teaching a lot of you what you already know in great depth, but I think it is really helpful doing a Bible overview, especially with this kind of book, And uh, it doesn't do any of us any harm to be able to look again at uh, how this all fits together. So, slide one. Here we go, Han. Let's see if we can do it. Where are we in Daniel and what is going on? Those are the first set of questions that we need to look at. Where are we in Daniel? What is going on? And chapter 1, verse 1 tells us where we are and what is going on. Let's just read that together. That'll come up on the screen behind me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, that verse alone holds a lot of information and needs a lot of explanation. For the questions we now ask, uh, answer are, who are these kings, what is Judah, and why is it being besieged? And those are great questions. This is where our Bible timeline comes into play. So let's step out of Daniel for the moment and head all the way back, about 1,500 years or so before the events of Daniel, to very near the very beginning. And as I walk through this very quick Bible overview, a timeline will appear with all the major events of what is happening to God's people as we go through history. And and underneath them, you'll see all the books of the Bible where those stories are found, those events are found. And underneath them, you'll see all the main characters that are really important that we're just going to touch on as uh, we go through. And so for those of you who remember from our series in Genesis and Exodus after Adam and Eve and the fall from perfection... God wanted to make a new start, didn't he? And so he created a new people for himself, the Israelites. 
Through Abraham, God said he was going to give birth to a nation that would be a people for his own possession in the earth. His people were going to be his possession, and they were going to be a light to the nations. They would bless the whole world. They were to display godliness and goodness. They were to tell others about their God, Yahweh, who had birthed them through ancient Abraham and Baron Sarah, who had saved them through, uh, from Egypt, from cruel Pharaoh, under uh, the great leader Moses, through, through plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And the God who had brought his people through the wilderness of 40 years to the edge of an incredible land. The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land called Israel, where they were to live under God's law, under his rule and his perfect blessing. And this is where we come to Joshua, the great leader who takes over looking after God's people when Moses died. And it is he that takes the people into the promised land and conquers it. With God's help, Joshua drives out the evil people of the land. That's where we get the, 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 the true accounts of the fall of Jericho and, and Ai, all those big cities. And Joshua partitions the land according to the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the land of Israel is now finally theirs. God's people are finally home. After all the waiting, all the slavery, all the suffering, all the wandering in the wilderness, all the bloodshed of war, Israel is home. Israel is safe in God's place under his rule and blessing. But the story doesn't then air, does it? For then we move on to the judges, where we begin to see the kind of nation that God wants to build, a nation where he is in charge, but we actually see the kind of nation that Israel are going to become, one where they don't want God to be in charge, one which descends rapidly into incredible and often unspeakable sin. And every time Israel sins, it seems that um, they're going to be either wiped out by their own folly or by a foreign power who is going to destroy them. And so God sends a rescuer, a leader, in the form of a judge. Someone like Gideon, for example. He's someone that we might know. He was a judge who was raised by God to fight off the mighty Midianite army using only jars, lanterns, and a few men, if, if, if you might remember that. But with each judge, the people never really listen. And as each judge dies, they descend further and further into sin until the very last judge, Samuel, under whom the people of God asked for the one thing that they were never meant to ask for, and that was a human king. They want a king because they want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel reminds them that the reason that they are God's people is that they're not meant to be like the other nations. They're meant to be really different. God is meant to be their king. But they refuse to listen. And in the end, God gives his people what they want, as, as he often does with all of us. All right, he says, I'll give you a king. And he gives them a king. Samuel is sent to anoint Saul, the first king of united Israel, one who started off well, but ended up to be an absolute disaster. He's petulant and proud. He brings his people to the brink of war with Israel's enemies. And so God removes Saul and raises up his king, King David, in his place. And here we reach the high point of the people of God, the kings and the kingdoms of David and of Solomon, the golden age of Israel. David is a king after God's own heart, isn't he? The, the true king of God's people, chosen by God himself, even though he's small and weedy. A king who was to unite Israel and protect her borders and defeat her enemies and establish God's kingdom on the earth, something he does with unbelievable success. King David, who wrote the vast majority of the Psalms who introduced the high point of worship as people flocked to the tabernacle and sacrificed and praised God for what he had done for them. But David failed. 
He slept with Bathsheba, a married woman, killed her husband, brought the nation into sin and disrepute. He repented deeply and was forgiven totally, but he was weakened. So then enters the great king Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, the wisest of all the kings, the one under whom Israel grew to the largest it had ever been in human history. Her borders were enlarged. There was unprecedented peace. The nation was unimaginably wealthy. It was almost like an empire. Israel was empire-like at that moment, exalted and honored, traded with as the central power of this part of the world, with armies and wisdom and wealth and influence to be marveled at. Kings and queens from as far as Ethiopia and Arabia came to honor Israel and her king. And this was the closest Israel ever gets, humanly speaking, to what God had in mind for his people. Total protection, total safety, total peace, and increasing universal recognition of the God of Israel. And Solomon was given the very greatest task of all the kings, and this is really important, one that even his father David was not given, and that was to build the temple. God, if you remember, was living in a box, was residing in the Ark of the Covenant, in a tent. Well, no longer was God to reside in a tent, says God to Solomon. You're going to build me my own palace, my own house. In stone and gold, the temple of God, beautiful and regal, and the, and the focal point of every element of Jewish life. God residing right at the heart of God's kingdom with his king in place, everyone under his perfect rule and wonderful blessing. But despite his unparalleled wisdom, despite building God's own house like his father, Solomon also falls. His power, his wealth, his wisdom become his gods. He loses grip over his kingdom. And upon his death, his enemies are released by God as punishment against mighty, mighty Israel. And this kingdom snaps in two. And from this point on, in the Old Testament, we have two kingdoms. We have a divided kingdom. And from this point on in Israel, Israel is never the same again. And this is where we get close to where we are with Daniel. For the kingdom is now divided right across the middle, the north and the south. We're going to see that with the ten northern kingdoms, um, the, the ten northern tribes of Israel, the smaller northern tribes, they are sort of breaking free from Jerusalem in the south. Imagine Scotland. Uh, uh, becoming independent uh, in the north from England and London in the south. That's exactly what is happening here in this divided kingdom. And this northern kingdom becomes known as, this is important, it becomes known as, confusingly, Israel. So the northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel, with Samaria as its new capital, now ruled by a completely different line of kings, starting with a king called Jeroboam. And the two remaining southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they become their own nation. They keep the capital city of Jerusalem, but they're now called Judah. And they have their own line of kings, starting with Rehoboam. And from this point on, the people of God split now between two kingdoms, the north and the south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, now enter the very worst years of their history in the Old Testament. From this moment on, bar a few Bright, notable exceptions, especially in Judah. Pretty much every king in both kingdoms are, are bad, really bad. Some are truly deviant. Sex slaves were pinned to poles for people to prostitute themselves with for fertility worship. Child sacrifice was practiced as the kings threw their children into fire to burn them alive to the god of Molech for victory in war. I mean, it is, it is unimaginable what happens. It is despicable. And so finally God calls time on his disobedient people. He says, enough is enough. 
And he brings incredible judgment, a judgment spoken of time and time again through the mouths of his prophets that are speaking to both kingdoms all the time. Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, all of them. Warning God's people again and again that he was going to judge them, a, a judgment that involved them being removed totally from the land. A warning of judgment that was almost universally ignored by the people of God. And that is where we get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Between the years 740 and 722 BC, about 200 years after King Solomon died and the kingdom was divided, Israel, the northern kingdom, is totally destroyed by the Assyrians in judgment and is taken away. And 120 years or so later, to complete God's judgment over his people, in the year 605 BC, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 happens in the third year, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that the greatest city in the world at that point came to Jerusalem, the the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, and besieged it. The last of that once great nation of Israel under David and Solomon is now lost. We have now moved from the time of the kings, and we are now deep into the time of the exile. We have moved from the time of blessing and now deep in the time of judgment. And if we are under any illusion as to who brought the exile of God's people around, just have a look at the second verse of Daniel 1 for us this morning. What do we read? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to remove God's people. And it's a, it's a pretty complete judgment. For everything that was anything to God's people is now lost. The land is gone, the city of Jerusalem is gone, the king is gone, the people are gone, even the temple is gone with its treasures and its ark, the resting place of God himself is gone. It's housed in another temple of a false god. It's all desecrated. There is nothing left. No hope, no future seemingly a lost history, and and seemingly no Yahweh. Or so it seems. For it is into this devastation and heartache and loss that Daniel steps into God's story. And this brings us to our second and final set of questions in our introduction this morning, and this is where we'll close. And that is, who is Daniel? Why is this book written, and what does it mean for us today? And these are really important questions for us this morning as we begin to unpack this book. First, this book, Daniel, is written by Daniel. Daniel is the author, but he's also the main character. As we read in our first few verses this morning, he was a Jew of noble birth. He was born in Judah and would have been really significant in the royal palace of Jehoiakim on the day that Nebuchadnezzar came in and invaded Judah. And what we read of in the rest of Daniel that that Em's read for us in Daniel 1 is is the strategy by which Nebuchadnezzar takes over other nations. It's quite clever. He doesn't flatten them. He weakens them by by taking the rulers and the leaders and the cleverest people out of the country, carts them off to Babylon where he is, and sort of leaves the country ungovernable, that, that there's no one there to be able to look after it. It would be a bit like... 
an invasion force coming to the UK and removing the Queen and the entire royal family and all the houses of government and all the MPs and the lords, all the civil servants, all the scientists and the sage advisors, all the heads of the universities, all the generals and the admirals and the, the leaders of the armed forces and, and leaving everyone behind. All the structures that make our country work would be removed and we would be helpless, regardless of what we think of academics and politicians, scientists and the royal family. It's true. This is what Nebuchadnezzar does. A total exile of the Jews from the land is actually going to take many, many years. What we read of in Daniel 1.1 is the very first exile of, of that group of leaders, the cream of the crop of society. And this is how Daniel comes into the story. For he is the best of the best, the part of the royal household brilliant and significant. And so he is taken by Nebuchadnezzar in this first wave of exile. Just look at the passage with me from verse 3. Let's just read this together. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, that is his right-hand man, to bring some of the people of Israel. Now, there is an example of where Israel and Judah becomes interchangeable. That's going to really annoy us over the course of the next few weeks, but I'm going to try and keep us right. Sometimes the writer will mean Judah, but he'll say Israel because he wants to make a point that it is God's people that he's talking about. So Nebuchadnezzar commands Ashpenaz to bring some of the people of Israel, Judah, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king, and among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So this is Daniel. He is the very best of Judah's society, and he is important, therefore, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to, be, he's going to go to Babylon University, is what he's going to do. He's going to be trained by the king to be re-educated, along with his friends, to be the best Chaldean. That's just another word for Babylonian. That's the, that's the, the wider land that they were living in. So when you hear the word Chaldean, we also mean that, that those in Babylon. He is to be in service to the king directly. Now, can you see what's going on here already? Daniel, God's man who, as we'll see, loves God and is deeply faithful to him, is now in one of the highest, most influential positions in mighty pagan Babylon. And this is where we get to the main point of this book. For the question we want to ask is, why has that happened? And what does it have to do with us? Why do we need to know about this clever Daniel in Jewish exile? Well, because Daniel... And the events that he records for us concerning himself in this position next to king, this pagan king at Israel's worst time all help to see, for us to see two very important things about God that we are going to revisit all the time through this book. Two points that have everything to do with us sitting here today. And that is, the first one is, to see God's loving plan for his people at all times. In this book, we are going to see that God has a loving plan for his people at all times, even in the very worst of times. Imagine how the average Jew would have felt when Jerusalem was under siege. Imagine the questions they would have been asking. Surely not. Surely not. Surely God's not going to desert us. Surely not. We're in the holy city. We have the holy temple where God lives. How can we possibly be defeated? And we're in the line of King David. We're even the nation that remained loyal to David and Solomon, Judah might say. 
Take the North, sure, they broke away, but us? Imagine then what they must have felt when they saw Jerusalem invaded a few years later when the city was finally destroyed, it was totally leveled. They must have been shattered. And they must have been asking the question, God, what on earth are you up to? And where are you? And what is your plan now? For it seems to have totally failed. And that is exactly what this book is written for. To remind God's people of exactly where he is and what he is doing when all seems lost. To help answer the questions, where are you, God? What are you up to, God? What is your plan now, God? For God does have a plan. And with Daniel, God's man in God's place, right at the heart of Babylonian politics and rule, we begin to see what just kind of of, of plan it is. Before we finish, to get a better look at this plan of God's people, this is really important, and I want to do this well, I want to turn to one very important part of the Old Testament, which really does help us to answer these questions as to where God is and what he is doing with God's people in exile. And that's in the book of Jeremiah. A prophet, as, as you'll have seen behind me, who was writing at the same time, exactly the same time, as Daniel, and all the people are being carted off into exile. And we find it in possibly the most famous passage in Jeremiah's writing in chapter 29. Let me just read a few parts of Jeremiah 29 to you. Verses 1 to 11, I'm just going to dip in and it'll be on the screen behind me. Listen to this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's just what we've read in Daniel 1. Verse 4. What does this letter say? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. This is a little bit like like, like the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Multiply. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its peace, you will find your peace. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that incredible? God's plan for his people in this most desperate time in Babylon is for their welfare, for their peace, in other words, one of hope, one of full and incredible restoration. You see, just as much as it was God's hand that judged his people, so it will also be his ultimate plan to save his disobedient people yet again. He has not left them, and he will continue to protect them, and he will make them thrive. All is not lost. And the book of Daniel is Daniel writing to the exiles, writing to us about exactly how God is going to do that, how he is going to keep his promises, how he has not abandoned his plan, even though the holy city is gone, the temple is gone, the king is gone, the people are gone, the land is gone. Despite all of that, throughout this national disaster, God is not gone. He is not dead. And he still has a plan. And that plan, did you notice, is quite extraordinary in Jeremiah. For the people are not to hide away and be miserable in exile and sort of leave dirty Babylon to its own devices, as you kind of think he might say. 
Neither are they to totally abandon themselves to Babylon culture and forget God, but they are to live well and live distinctively in this new culture, to to marry, to work, to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon of all places. And like Daniel, who over the next few weeks and months will, will perfectly example what that kind of living looks like, God's people can take part in all parts of secular life, still remaining faithful to him, Doing so, remaining distinctive, different, godly, set apart, all the while blessing the pagan nation around them. Bringing God's influence to bear on this evil city and hoping for a future home and rest in the midst of the most darkest times of their lives. And as always in the Old Testament, what is true of Israel, God's people then, is true of us now. The plan God has for us living in a dark, anti-God, anti-Jesus world where Jesus doesn't seem to reign, where the word of God is rejected, where rulers and leaders are against God and his church, where the church seems small and insignificant, the plan for us is to seek the welfare and peace of the places in which we live, as Daniel does, to work distinctively for God, to live and speak for Jesus powerfully and uncompromisingly in public life, to bless those around us through our living and our actions and our words, and to trust that he has a plan of hope and not of harm to bring us through the times that we live in. And not only the times generally that we as a church live in, but also individually in the difficult and personal times that we live in. This is really where we get to apply, Daniel. When a relationship fails... And all seems lost, and we question, well, where are you, God? Just like the exile of people, God, what do we hold on to? Well, that he has a plan for us. That we can still trust him, that he will look after us, that he wants what is best for us, that he is still God. When an exam, a really important exam is failed, or a job is lost, or we're forced to move to a place we don't want to go to, or our plans are ruined by COVID, or we're desperately ill, or we're deeply persecuted for our faith, or we're being disciplined for our sin, and it really hurts, and all seems lost, and we question where God is, and what is he he doing? Well, we know what God is doing as we move through Daniel in the exile. He is in control has our best interests at heart, and he has a plan to restore us to more than we are, a plan of peace, hope, and a future. God's plan is to make his people then and now flourish in times of deep trial, to learn to depend on him again, to remember all the lessons that they'd forgotten, they got wrong in the past. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy for them or for us. It's not that we're going to be blessed with tons of stuff and better relationships or better health. Exile for the people of God, as we will see through this these months is brutal life for us will be brutal but in the midst of those disaster moments we see that god and not nebuchadnezzar reigns and that brings us to the second major point of daniel very quickly for god also has an eternal purpose for his people for all time It is not enough for God to look after his people while they are in exile. It's not enough that he just keeps us safe in the here and now. No, he has a much greater purpose for his people. In Daniel's time, this purpose was to bring his people home. We're going to see this again in Jeremiah's letter, the second half, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, to, to, to the land I gave you, to Jerusalem. Verse 13 And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. 
and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God's purpose is to restore his people to their rightful home in God's land under his rule and blessing again. There will be a return to the land. The Bible story continues. Their home will be restored to Israel. Babylon will not keep her hold over God's people. And Jerusalem and the temple will be built again under Ezra and Nehemiah. And an incredible restoration age is in store. But this is not all God has purpose for his people. For he will eventually bring his people home, not just to physical Jerusalem, but to eternal Jerusalem. The perfect promised land, the very greatest kingdom of Israel, won through the greater king, Jesus. And this is what the the second half of Daniel really points towards, all the prophecies and dreams. Daniel will help us see how God's purpose is being worked out over the centuries into the future beyond Daniel, beyond the end of this book, leaves us peering over into the New Testament. Hundreds of years later, as we see kingdoms rise and fall, all giving way to the final kingdom that arrives in the birth of a baby. As we are brought to see how he fully restores us, his people, and takes us finally, eternally home. And on that, I have one last thing to say on the book of Daniel. This book is not so much about Daniel and his great faith and his godly living, We don't read this and think, my goodness, I am nothing like Daniel. There are important lessons that we need to learn from Daniel about how we live uncompromised lives for Jesus in a compromised world, and we're going to learn them. But he is not the focus of the book. The God that Daniel believes and trusts in relentlessly throughout the worst time for him and his people is the focus of the book. In fact, it is Jesus who is the focus of this gospel book. The one who will properly take his people whom he saves with him from exile in pagan and painful existences and brings us home to be with him forever. Under his kingship, in his land, under his perfect and eternal rule and blessing. And in the most brutal times of our lives and in the pagan everyday world that we live in and have to navigate through, that is everything for us as believers to know. Despite what seems to be true in the world, God is king. He has a loving plan for his people at all times, even when all seems lost. But he also has a greater purpose for his people for all time. As in Jesus, we are brought fully home into the new, better and eternal kingdom under the new, better and eternal king. And I can't wait to dig into those wonderful truths with you over the course of this term. Let me pray as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much Uh, for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it all hangs together as one big story pointing to one big thing. You, God, our God and our King, who came uh, to, um, um, who, who wanted us to know you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your words to us throughout the ages. Thank you that this all hangs together. Thank you that we know the Bible is true. And thank you that every single part of it is useful for our knowledge and and our encouragement and our rebuking and, and our confessing of the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily lives in difficult parts of the world. Father God, we pray very, very much that you'll be with us as we go through this book. Help us to, to enjoy the richness of the narrative and the language that you give to us in the Bible. 
and may it encourage us as we seek to, to live uh, like Daniel, as we seek to know how to live uncompromised lives, but more than that, as we seek to trust and depend in the God uh, that saves us and that brings us home to future glory, to the greater kingdom under the greatest king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.